Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am your host, Alberto Ligi from London. And as our regular listeners know, uh, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire our global audience to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, if I encourage you folks to subscribe to the podcast, that's very much appreciated. It helps individuals who are looking for content of this nature find our show and, uh, and be inspired by it. And today is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Matt Hyde. He is the uh, chief executive of the Scouts in the UK. And he and I have known each other for about a year, maybe a little bit longer, as, uh, as the Scouts were exploring uh, venturing into early years as a, as a proposition, as a service offering. And I was providing a little bit of uh, informal advice or my two cents worth of wisdom. He and I have stayed in touch, developed a really good rapport. And he runs an amazing organization, which is part of an amazing global organization. And um, so, Matt, it's, it's a, a sincere pleasure having you on board today. And thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto your uh, podcast, Alberto. No, wonderful, wonderful. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you were uh, previously the chief executive of the National Union of Students, which for any of us who did our, our university studies in the UK, you know what that is. But yeah, what's your trajectory? And um, yeah. Well, I'm uh, chief, as you say, I'm chief executive of uh, the Scout Association in, in the UK. And I've been doing this role for the last six years. 2013, I joined. And as you say, before that, I was chief executive of the National Union of Students for about seven years, where we went through a period of uh, transformational change there. And prior to that, my career um, uh, was and has been in the uh, voluntary sector, so the charity sector here in the UK primarily. Um, there's a bit of consultancy around the edges, but but principally it's been in the in the voluntary sector. So that's my my trajectory today. Wonderful. Are you enjoying it? Uh, this is, I think, one of the best roles you can do in the charity sector and indeed the youth sector <laughs> and possibly in the country. And, uh, and the reason for that is because uh, uh, scouting is a uh, an incredible movement. I would, uh, I'm biased, but I'd probably say it's one of the best movements in the world. We've, there's now 50 million scouts uh, across the world in about 193 countries uh, and we uh, prepare young people with skills for life in the UK uh, that's from uh, the age of six to the age of 25 uh, boys and girls from all backgrounds um, and here in the UK there's about 460,000 young people and uh, there's 160,000 adult volunteers uh, and in addition to that, we actually have 60,000 young people on our waiting list who um, want to join but uh, can't join because uh, we don't have enough adult volunteers, even though 160,000 is uh, absolutely uh, the most uh, adult volunteers we've ever had. So it's an interesting uh, challenge to have. It would be like, you know, having a um, having a supermarket and people 
queuing around the block and not being able to actually getting the store so you turn up enough product on the shelves so it's uh, it's quite unusual that's not true of every country um, and scouting varies very much across all the different national scout organizations but there's a real um, success factor and in the UK and this is a quite remarkable British institution you know there's a lot of obviously talk here in the UK at the moment about yeah. our place in the world uh, I would argue that in terms of if you like soft power scouting is one of the uh, greatest exports uh, of this country right before we get into the whole capacity issue and uh, sounds like a good problem to have Tell me about the Scouts itself. So the organization origins here and um, what exactly is going on? Yeah, well, I'm um, so I'm broadcasting this from uh, Gilwell Park, which is our, our home in Epping Forest. Uh, we're right. actually celebrating our centenary year. Um, scouting was set up in uh, 1907. Um, there was a, there's an experimental camp that Baden-Powell did our founder, Robert Baden-Powell, uh, at Brownsea Island. And, and the interesting thing about that was it was bringing uh, boys from the, them just boys, we're now boys and girls, or, or genders. Um, uh, that was about bringing boys from the uh, poorest parts of East London, mixing them with boys from the best public schools, really to make them realize they had more in common than divided them. Right. Using a pedagogy and a style of learning by doing, getting outdoors, uh, camping, uh, and those ingredients are as relevant today as they were um, uh, back in uh, 1906, 1907, when also, and some of it interestingly started from the single inspired idea of Baden-Powell, who was a celebrity at the time, mm -hmm. um, uh, made famous after the Battle of Mafeking. Uh, which he kind of won against all the odds. Then wrote this book called Scouting for Boys, uh, which became a international bestseller. And really, at that point, there was no um, thinking around uh, structured learning. It was if if you read Scouting for Boys, it's written to the boy and says, "Here are things you can do." But it was um, very much about it was very much focused on citizenship mm -hmm. and how you could. Uh, improve yourself if you like as a young person by doing these fun uh, games and, and getting outdoors and learning and I think one of the th reasons for our uh, longevity and sustainability is because some of the simplicity of those ideas are as relevant today as they were uh, back at the start of the 20th century and and some of the themes are the same you know divided communities uh, always the risk of rising populism um, the uh, concerns about uh, young people's life chances, mm -hmm. um, concerned about um, then um, uh, poverty, kids getting into um, uh, then particularly alcohol uh, concerns. So it's really interesting and, and that actually, if you look at it, um, tragically, some things uh, haven't changed. Um, and yet people still recognize and in the, and certainly in this country parents still recognize that scouting is a great antidote to some of those societal challenges and from this uh, start over 100 years ago now 193 countries 50 million participants yeah that's quite, right quite a quite a feat yeah. 
And here at Gilwell Park, as I say, where I am at the moment, this uh, this is very this is an interesting. So it's a 104 acre estate in the middle of Epping Forest. So that's just northeast of uh, of London. It's kind of mm-hmm. Greater London, if you like. And this was given to Baden Powell by a guy called McLaren back in 1919, partly to take uh, boys from the uh, slums and the poverty of the East End um, to give them uh, fresh air and to experience. Uh, uh, scouting and camping but critically and this is the really interesting thing uh, it came obviously towards the end of the first world war um, and we lost about 8,000 scout leaders in the first world war and so this was one of the first places globally where there was organized youth work and to train adults in how to uh, uh, teach scouting and if you like a form of youth work um, to a new generation of leaders. So it's a place of huge uh, significance within scouting globally. It is not uncommon. We will have people who come flying to Heathrow, come around the M25, the motorway, and uh, will come straight here first because it is of such international significance. So it's a very special year for us. Uh, we had just had a visit from the Duchess of Cambridge um, about six weeks ago who, who wanted to see it for uh, with her own eyes because it's such a, a place of importance globally to scouting. Really inspiring. I can visualize the whole thing. I've never had the pleasure of visiting, but- um, You must come, you must I, come. I'm putting it in the diary, I, absolutely. If you wanna be a scout, when can you start up until what age, and then tell me also about these volunteers, this workforce or volunteer force that sure. you're so desperately in need of, because maybe yeah. maybe some people listening to this are, are inclined to take up that challenge. So if you're a young person from the age of five and a half, six, you can join, uh, you can join scouts at that age. So from six to eight year olds, we have what are called beaver scouts, eight to 10 and a half, there are cub scouts, and then you have scouts at 10 and a half to 14, then we have explorer scouts and network scouts um, from 18 uh, to 25. That that changes all over the world, they've all got different names, you can end up with joeys or tigers, depending on whether you're in Australia or uh, America or wherever. Um, but uh, here, what tends to happen is you go on the website, you say, I want my child to join, uh, and then you either are lucky enough to get straight in or you're, you're on the waiting list. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the ways to uh, advance off the waiting list is to volunteer. So many of the people who were involved in scouting as adult volunteers are parents also. That certainly um, was my route in. Right. Um, so I've been doing this as a volunteer at the same time as being a chief executive because I, I really believe in leadership you know whilst you need to keep your star uh, your eyes on the stars you need to keep your feet on the ground and, and I really wanted to understand what was going on at the coalface so for the last six years I've also been an adult volunteer as well as a um, as well as a, a, the chief executive um, and and gone through the different sections as my son has gone through the different um, sort of from beavers to cubs to scouts. Uh, the the other way um, and there's another route in in terms of attracting volunteers, which is former members. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we do is we have a particularly uh, focused leadership program at the ages of 14 to 18. So we have about 20,000 trained young leaders, as we call them, who help 
um, some of the younger ages. But that really is about getting them into the habit of volunteering and being part of the movement and giving back. Many of them also do it as part of the service element of the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Mm-hmm. So everyone wins. You know, we get up, they, they get learned skills that they can put on their CV and that they will help them with either jobs or going to applying to college or university. We get a pipeline, a new pipeline of uh, of leaders, and um, uh, and uh, the young people obviously get a fantastic time, and and often a more fun program <laughs> because uh, some of the younger ages love being with the kind of teenagers rather than the uh, uh, some of the some of the older people like me, um, <laughs> and and you know that is, and then there's there's probably another sort of twenty percent of people who come in who are new to the movement and just want to volunteer and give back because they can see the impact it has on young people's lives. How do they, how do they do that? What are they, is there a training that they need to undergo yep. or? Yeah. So, uh, both in terms of the, uh, going back on the website to express an interest and then we'll, ch- we'll, uh, uh, funnel them down to the relevant, uh, local scout group. And then there's a program, there's a, there's a training program. And in fact, again, one of the things that's significant about, um, Gilwell Park is one of the things that Baden-Powell introduced was this uh, concept of um, the wood badge so that mm-hmm. you get your wood beads when you get trained and we still do that today we still give out uh, um, uh, wood beads and so this is the home of the wood badge and again wherever you're trained in the world whether it be in Kenya or Argentina or Germany or um, Canada, you when you become a leader, uh, a fully trained leader, you get your you get your wood badge, and that all comes from here. So, um, so that's what we do, and it, and the training we take very seriously, obviously, because partly because obviously that you know our number one priority is to keep kids safe. Sure. And secondly, we want them to have a, an amazing um, and fun and inspiring program uh, that gives them the skills that they. Uh, the, what we would describe as the practical character and employability skills you need to to succeed in life. Mm. The employability piece is really important. Uh, I imagine these days I hear a lot about it. It is, and you know, we when we launched our strategy last year, we we called the strategy skills for life, and we introduced a, a new brand at the time focused on skills for life, really focused on the benefits you get from scouting, because. As you, if you think about, it, I mean, in a, in a kind of an age of AI um, and automation, some of those softer skills are going to become even more important than the previous generation. So the the ability to um, uh, relate to people, um, to think creatively, all of those. Uh, what I mean, you know, I don't really like the term soft skills because it kind of underplays them. But those mm-hmm. um, uh, those interpersonal characteristics, the ability to bounce back from failure, the ability to um, have the grit and the resilience you need to, uh, and that's not just about being a, a place of work, that's actually about having a happy and fulfilling life, as you know, um, in terms of um, uh, the characteristics that you develop that set you apart from others. The, you know, if you think about the sort of Carol Dweck growth mindset stuff, it's about exercising that muscle. And the important bit about the pedagogy within scouts is the element of learning by doing. This is not mm-hmm. sitting in a classroom or a seminar room in absorbing a lot of knowledge and walking out and thinking you can do it. It's about practicing it. And that, you know, that's my... I am the product of the system. So when I was um, 
So when I, by the time I was 10, 11, and I joined as a, as a Cub Scout, uh, first time I ever led anything, first time I ever fundraised, first time I ever volunteered. And at that moment on, everything I did uh, started from that moment in scouting. It set me on a path of uh, leadership development that, yeah, you know, there are other things I, um, you know, I went on and did an MBA later on and things like that. But really, it was the, the foundations uh, were established in those very early days of, you know, leading a, a, a team of people at the age of 10, which is kind of, you know, remarkable when you think about it. Um, and um, and then I went off and did uh, other things in terms of non-formal learning, like be captain of the football team and stuff like that. That all started from those very, very early stages. And I'm involved in a... Um, charity here in the uk which was set up by the prince of wales called step up to serve mm -hmm. and uh that is looking at how you can increase the number of young people uh involved in social action whether that be volunteering or fundraising or campaigning or what have you um and some of the research we did there found that if you really want to make a big difference in terms of young people volunteering get them before they're 11 because if you can then create, I think they're twice as likely to volunteer if they do it by 11 as opposed to by the time of 16. Because they've started to exercise a muscle at a really formative stage. That means you're inculcating habits of service that will follow you through the rest of your life. Fascinating. Speaking of the earlier stages in, in life, the reason you and I met was because you guys were interested in exploring and uh, expanding your service offering into earlier years. And that's an area that's quite close to my heart. Tell, tell us a little bit about that in terms of the Scouts now and how you've sort of, if I remember correctly, if I understand correctly, I know you're doing some piloting or have been doing some pilot work yeah. to, to figure out um, how you could provide a, an offering to an earlier, uh, a younger demographic. Well, you have been uh, invaluable in terms of your uh, advice and insights uh, along the way. So thank you for that. We... Um, are, uh, uh, as you say, exploring whether or not uh, we should go younger, uh, start younger uh, here for scouting uh, in the UK. Uh, and uh, looking in particular whether we start with four or five year olds. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about why that is. The, um, uh, th this is happening in other parts of scouting around the world. So even here in the UK, in Northern Ireland, for the last 25 years, there has been a sister organization called Squirrels, uh, where they start at four years old in, in Northern Ireland. And it's very distinctively scouting. Uh, you go and you see it, you look at it and you think that is learning by doing. Uh, it's kids getting outside, it's kids learning skills for life, working in small teams. The reason why, you know, I'm here and the reason why lots of our volunteers and our staff uh, are, are so passionate about scouting is, is about the impact on the individual. And you can sometimes lose sight of that in any of these organizations that have been around for a while and get sidetracked onto uh, discussions about whether, you know, whether the uniform's right or have we got the governance right or things like that. But actually, ultimately, it's changing young people's lives. And, it, and you know better than, better than me or anyone else that actually um, the earlier you can start, the greater the impact, uh, and particularly in terms of developing some of those um, executive skills. Uh, and, and then if you lay those foundations, you're more likely to 
succeed further down further down the track as you get older and so I'd always been quite keen to explore this area. There was understandably a bit of reticence mm-hmm. uh, in the movement because, you know, uh, when this was established as an organisation, it was really a uh, sort of uh, teenager, adolescent uh, focused uh, organisation. It was only in 1916 that suddenly it goes a bit younger to to Cub Scouts and Beaver Scouts. So starting at six is also relatively recent. That didn't happen until 1986. So I think there's a bit of concern around, you know, does this become a children's organisation rather than a youth organisation? Right. My, my driver has been, you know, if we're here to make a big difference to young people's lives and wider society, there is a very, very compelling argument to start younger. Um, in the States, uh, not for not long now, they've had a programme called Lions, which is starting, I think, about five years old. And what was what's so compelling about that and what's certainly inspired us here is that um, it, they've tried to do different things. It's been quite disruptive. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, uh, what they one of the things they do there is that in their program, they bring uh, you, you come along with a parent or a carer. So, so the, what's interesting about that is you've suddenly got a lot more adults in the room. You are having a bigger impact on the home learning environment as well as on the young person. But what they found was, and this is really fascinating, that of the people they attracted, 69% were new to scouting. Mm-hmm. So one of our focuses is not just on growing, but it's where we're growing and ensuring we're reaching parts of the uh, parts of the UK that we're not that we haven't traditionally reached, particularly in areas of deprivation or in terms of uh, demographics such as uh, in terms of ethnicity. And really interestingly, given as as I said earlier about the waiting list, 75% of those parents and carers went on to become adult volunteers. Wonderful. So you can suddenly see something here that is a virtuous circle whereby we can potentially have a much bigger impact on the young person. We can have a much bigger impact on the home learning environment. We can swell our numbers in reaching new communities, but critically, we can also uh, find a way of providing a new pipeline of adult volunteers. And I think I think the reason for that, and, the, and, and I've thought about this a lot, why has why that worked so well? Well, I think if you're dealing with a 11 to 15-year-old and you say to someone uh, as, a, as a parent or as a member of the public, like, we just want you to come along and volunteer. We just need you to uh, pitch some tents, strike some tents, light some fires, uh, help us with some knots. Um, some people will run for the hills and go, I'm sorry, that's just not me. You know, I'm not Bear Grylls. Um, but there'll be other people. Actually, I think at those younger ages, if you say to someone, look, we just need you to come along. Do you mind doing, reading a, a book or, do you, you know, a short story? Or do you mind running a game of Simon Says? Or do you, do you mind uh, doing this craft activity? You've lowered the, the barriers to participation. Right. So you're engaging people in a much more um, accessible way that in doing so, you know, I can't describe it as lowering the ramp. So you can then say, well, actually, then you can move people up into Beaver Scouts and then into Cub Scouts. And it's less of a, um, uh, a, a high uh, hurdle to, to jump over. So we'll see. We've got, we've got, four, we've now got funding for 40 pilots. Okay. Um, 
and uh, some of that's government money from a department for education some of it's uh, from uh, a uh, livery company over here uh, uh, called the um, Mercer's company have given us a load of money sure um, and 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 we will see how it goes over the next year and then decide whether to roll it out or not well it sounds like you have some at least some encouraging uh, initial feedback on a few levels and you can see the the, the positives from doing it for sure, yeah, absolutely. But I imagine on the governor's side, you, you touched on that a little bit. Not everybody would agree, right? Not everybody wants it to be so young, and um, and that I imagine with such a um, robust membership base and so many vocal stakeholders doesn't necessarily make your life very easy. Uh, no, uh, that's true, but it's an important part of leadership, and I think particularly. Uh, a as we stand here in 2019 i look at the next decade or so and um, the leaders that i think will succeed in the future are a able to engage and part of engagement is not just having an idea or seeing something you think is right and then ramming it home until you've persuaded everyone that you're right but actually l genuinely listening and trying to understand different perspectives genuinely following what the data is telling you because we might get to the end of this and find out it's not such a great idea or sure. that there are benefits but there are disbenefits as well and then if and the balance of that having listened to people you can address where the concerns are and and then replay those address those and then come back then you might take people with you and i think that is a um you also have to accept that sometimes you that this idea that seemed like a good idea might not be a good idea and you have to step away from it uh and and you know I, i'm very we have some amazing people here and they are very good at certainly holding me to account in terms of saying hang on we said we we're going to do pilots let's follow the evaluation let's not get too carried away at this point and i think there's there is a lot in that because that will make it that will make uh any cell should it need to be made more compelling and it will actually critically make any outcome more sustainable so you know and, and i think some of the concerns are legitimate in terms of uh could it have a negative impact on other sections could it mean that actually you grow in four and five year olds but you decline in uh in 14 and 18 year olds or, and, and how do we feel about that um equally uh there are a whole sort of set of practical skills like what does that mean in terms of safeguarding you know, dealing with the safeguarding of a of, of a teenager is going to be different from dealing with the safeguard uh, the safeguarding of a four and five year old. So there's some things we have to work through and listen, and then and then we'll, we'll follow the data. But we'll, and we need to take people with us because actually, the beauty of our our model, which is kind of a sort of uh, I kind of see it as a shared accountability. We we are eight thousand separate organisations. They're all separate charities. Is that if you are able to influence and make a compelling proposition, it's much more likely to succeed than if you're trying to ram it down a line management chain. What success look like to you in the next five, 10 years? Uh, well, our kind of horizon at the moment is to 2023. And, okay. um, um, and, you know, depending on where you get to there, depends on where you get to uh, over the next five years after that. But I mean, you know, we want to continue to grow. So we've got a target to add another 50,000 young people on over the next uh, four years mm -hmm. uh, we want to um, it's where we grow is important so we've got a target 
of areas of deprivation. We've added 1,080 uh, provision in 1,080 areas over the last, uh, uh, sorry, areas of deprivation over the last uh, five years. And the, then there's a target, uh, this is a specific target to identify another and be present in another 500 areas of deprivation over the next four years. Um, as part of our strategic objective around inclusion is a focus on representing uh, modern British uh, society. So we are, uh, we've got some great progress around in terms of gender. So we've got more girls and young women than we've ever had before. That's about 30%. And it's, that's only 25 years after we introduced girls into scouting and made ourselves uh, co-educational. Mm -hmm. um, We've made incredible strides in terms of uh, LGBT uh, plus issues here in the UK in terms of representation at the highest levels of the organisation and through. Um, but we've got a lot further to go in terms of race and ethnicity. And uh, like, like much of the charity sector, there is uh, under-representation there. Um, there are lessons to learn in other areas, I think, and other communities where we are particularly succeeding so particularly in terms of growth in the muslim community is one of our um uh, things we're very proud of we've added 5000 um uh, young british uh, muslims to our membership over the last um uh, 7 years so uh, so so that's so that's there's a, there's a there's a big uh, uh challenge in terms of are we reflecting modern british society because if we're not there is a challenge there as you look forward the next 10, 20 years in uh, looking uh, at, at odds or um, of being something from a period of time or only being a movement that's relevant to certain types of people. Right. Um, and that's a challenge. Now, the other, so if growth is, we've got four strategic objectives. One is growth, one is inclusion. The other two are about being shaped by young people and we believe if we can genuinely engage young people in the um, governance and the decision making of the organization that helps to respond to some of the issues around growth and inclusion because you're you know young people are, view the world in a very different way sure and um and then the fourth one is about community impact so it's not just about the impact that scouting that we have on young people in scouting, it's the impact that scouting has on wider society. And one of the, uh, so one of the things we do there is something called, we introduced something called a million hands, which was saying we've got half a million people, let's partner with uh, national charities or international charities on uh, matters that are particularly of interest to young people, let them decide which issues we should choose. So we've done stuff around mental health. We've done stuff around, uh, interestingly, uh, dementia, uh, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's society, which really surprised us that young people wanted to uh, pick that. But of course, they were having more elderly relatives and friends that uh, were uh, suffering from dementia. So they wanted, so they wanted to take action on that. And then in the new tranche. Uh, of partners that we're about to announce, uh, we've just announced, but we're going to do more on this in October, focusing obviously on issues that matter to young people like climate change uh, with WWF and also on uh, homelessness with the uh, UK charity uh, crisis. Um, so, so these are slightly more edgier areas, I would say, 
um, than probably, uh, I think when I first joined, six, rejoined, if you like, six years ago, um, I felt that we had lost our way a bit and some of the young people were picking up litter or cutting hedges. But that was a bit of a waste of the talent of, mm-hmm. in total, 640,000 people who want to make a difference to the world. And, and actually, that's what I'm proposing now is actually much more consistent with Baden-Powell's original vision, I think, of leaving the world a little better than we found it. I am sit, sat in a room opposite a, a painting from 1916 of boy, then Boy Scouts who have, um, have rescued a, a girl who's fallen ill, uh, possibly during the war by the look of it, and bringing her uh, home to her parents. Um, there's another uh, painting in an area of uh, in, in an area of deprivation in um, uh, the East London, where um, the uh, scouts have raised money for uh, by selling poppies in order for that family. So I think what I'm proposing is much more back to our roots than I think we lost our way a bit in the in the 90s. How do you connect when you're dealing with um, climate change in WWF or dementia or? What do those relationships look like? Are they very bespoke and individual, or is it uh, grant making or volunteering? Or uh, it's a good question. So for 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 Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's Society ran a program called Dementia Friends, where you trained um, uh, people, uh, in our instance, young people, to be dementia friends. It's about an hour and a half of of training. Uh, partly about understanding about dementia, but and then giving practical tips on okay, what could you do? Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we've had about twenty-five thousand scouts who became trained dementia friends, who've then gone and spent time with uh, people living with dementia um, uh, to listen, uh, to be present uh, for some of the younger ages. I did this with my own. Um, a set of young scouts uh, going into a care home and uh, whether that be uh, singing carols at Christmas. Really, f- for me, it's about uh, bringing together connections in communities on a very human and personal way that uh, builds understanding, breaks down barriers and and actually is simply about compassion and and kindness uh, and and it's really simple but it's so powerful so if i think about what we did in the um, care home what's interesting is the care, this care home is it basically the, uh, the bottom of my garden there's an oak tree and the other side of the oak tree is uh, two things there's the care home and the uh, and the scout hut and the um uh, when we went in and we started to connect and some of these kids uh, started to meet some of the elderly people in the care home, fascinatingly, uh, with no inhibitions, unlike the adults, you're just going up and talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, something really magical and powerful happened. And one of them said, you know, you know, we haven't seen, heard anything from the scouts for the last uh, uh, 20 years. And I thought this, and, and yet you're next door neighbours because because the care home was an alien building. It was not, you know, it's almost like nothing to do with us. And yet it's part of our community. So I think these, these very small acts of kindness can have huge impact, both for the young people in terms of their development and learning. I remember doing this as a kid, if I'm honest, in the, in the eighties and also obviously for the, for the residents of the home. What keeps you up at night? 
Is, is there anything, a particular opportunity or a particular challenge that you're uh, somewhat preoccupied with? There are two things, I suppose, that really uh, come to mind. One of which is that we have a responsibility, a huge responsibility, to ensure that in scouts, uh, young people undertaking these range of activities, um, whether that be uh, paragliding, camping, um, zorbing, uh, caving, climbing, uh, that they are safe and that they are safe from harm. That is the uh, number one priority and the thing that I uh, spend a lot of my time uh, thinking about, whether that be how do we do that from a, culture, from a cultural point of view, from what policies do you need, what training do you need, what metrics do you need in order to reassure yourself that that's being done in the best possible way. Um, it's one of the things I'm probably proudest of in terms of our investment for the last six years, but not something that we are ever uh, complacent about because it's um, uh, these are, these are young people's lives, and therefore you you um, you're dealing with um, a certain degree of uh, of of risk. So uh, let me think. You know, a couple of months ago. You get the call late on the night that you don't want that someone, uh, a child, might have been knocked down by a hit and run we had. Um, and, uh, you know, the leaders had done everything right in terms of the risk assessments and making sure that the kids were in high uh, vis, uh, vests, but this car had come off the road. And they're, they're the things that really you just, that, that you know, the issue, you drop everything and gives you the intake of breath. Um, and then the other bit is, the, the bit that I'm much more preoccupied about, and this is probably less reactive and more proactive, is this issue of uh, diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and what are the ways in which you can confront a society, I suppose, in order to ensure that we genuinely are um, eliminating barriers for full participation and being open about that and doing that in a way that in terms of the way the world is changing, whether that be dealing with trans kids or people from communities where they've never even been aware of scouting or where there are language barriers or, or things like that. So that is something where um, if I look at the four areas of the goals of the last five years, the area where I can say, okay, we can chalk up some wins, but we have a long way to go still. I imagine that if you're going to be aiming for 50,000 additional kids in the next few years, and you already have, you said, over 400. 460. 460, yeah. So half a million kids in the UK, you're, by definition, I imagine, you're, you're already embracing uh, and including a lot of, a lot of uh, very diverse audience. Yeah, that's right. I mean, although where the wait, the waiting lists are most prevalent in middle class communities. So where parents are totally get, probably partly related to their own personal experiences and successes, where they know that extracurricular activities have had a dip, made a difference to them, and particularly something like scouting, which you stick out week in, week out, you get to these incredible experiences, then lo and behold, those are the areas where there's greatest demand. Um, what we found in some of the more uh, the less affluent areas is you really need uh, government funding mm-hmm. or, or funding of different types to build the capacity of the community, help us build the capacity of the community, if you like, teach people how to fish. 
but in doing so also remove cost barriers like the uniform the venue hire the equipment all that kind of stuff um but it's much much if you get it right and i've seen this in fact i was at a uh, i was in leeds in the in the north of uh north, north of england um the other week and in, in a new provision we've opened there with some uh one of our amazing uh funders called the pears foundation when you get it right crumbs is so much more powerful than simply just relying on state funding that is great when it's there but lo and behold when the government priorities change and the funding dries up suddenly the community feels like the whole the, the, the whole provision's gone and then and they lose faith sure. but actually if you can work with the community and provide the sort of support and we with that model we put in paid support and then we gradually withdraw the pay support once the group is stabilized that is incredibly powerful and not just on the young people you know there was a uh there was a example of a a parent who had come along with another parent getting involved in this new group one of the parents uh, uh, English wasn't their first language in fact they didn't speak a lot of English and therefore they'd lost confidence uh, they didn't have a great deal of confidence to go out and they never knew where Leeds City Centre was even though they were a mile outside of Leeds City Centre and lived there for three years and it was through engaging in the power of a civil society organisation and making a human connection that suddenly that barrier was broken down and that can be again just enabling so positive fascinating your funding how does that so you mentioned government funding you mentioned some foundations funding um how are you funded and are you not to plug your uh your organization but um, do you take uh, donations from the general public and yes please yes anything <laughs> will take anything um i mean i mean the interesting thing is we're a federation of eight thousand separate charities so each of those charities uh fundraise uh through a mix of uh ways uh they they, they, they charge a membership fee mm -hmm. um it is one of the most affordable forms of youth work in the uk um and then they also fundraise from the public or uh if they're lucky enough uh bringing funding from local businesses at, at, at a national level or, tr or trusts or foundations or rotary clubs or those sorts of things lions um those sorts of things we are kind of responsible for uh, uh, services if you like how that the entire association in terms of managing the risk and reputation of that, supporting adult volunteers appropriately, making sure the program is fit for purpose, but also everything from uh, comms to public affairs to safeguarding to legal advice to a whole, a whole range of things. Um, and within that, our net income, about half comes from the membership fee. So a proportion of what the parent would pay locally goes to the centre. And half really comes from our commercial areas. Right. So if you, if you gross it up, it's about a, a quarter of his membership and, and, and uh, three quarters are, are commercial. But actually, if, if you netted it down, it, it's about half and half. So of the half that, of the half that comes from the commercial income, uh, we run uh, 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 the retail business for scouting, uh, scout store. We actually run the retail business for world scouting as well. Uh, we run uh, two conference centres, a hotel here at uh, Gilwell Park, 
um, seven uh, activity centres across the UK um, and uh, an insurance company, an insurance broker and uh, and a captive insurance company. So it's quite a um, and, and that and, and then when you get government funding or trusts and foundations that puts wind in the sails it also means and it helps us to go quicker and it helps us to uh, uh, go further uh, but the great thing is we're not reliant on it and that means we're masters of our own destiny it also means that um, we can uh, uh, target where we want that funding to be and uh, have the ability if there are too many strings attached to say actually no, we're not going to take that funding. Right. Um, but but for those funders, a, a significant chunk of what they give, you know, almost a hundred percent, goes straight to direct delivery and direct frontline services, as opposed to uh, lots of overhead costs, which of course that is that is one of the things that concerns um, uh, lots of donors in terms of well, how much of this pound I give um, or dollar I give is going to go to um, uh, back office functions. If somebody's listening to this episode and they think, yeah, that's really interesting, I'd like to um, to follow up with some questions or just get involved. What's the best way of somebody getting a hold of you or your office? Or if any? you if you if you go online, the full details are there. Uh, within that, there's our information center. If you come via our information center, it will um, it will get to me uh, quickly. Wonderful. And just to let our audience know. We will have episode notes where we recap everything having to do with today's conversation. And we'll also make sure that we include the relevant links to the website, to Matt's uh, social media accounts and so forth, so that um, you know where to go for next steps if, if this conversation is uh, resonating with you. Yeah, all, that's what I was going to say. Actually, yes, all contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn is the other is the other, the other way. So uh, at Matt Hyde on, on Twitter and uh LinkedIn, I think I'm Matt Hyde. You'll find me. Matt Hyde Scouts, you'll find me. Perfect. perfect. Well, I'll include a link anyways on, on the website. Uh, our website is Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And again, full episode notes there. Before you take off, I wanted to ask you if our listeners uh, had, if, if you wanted to leave with one key takeaway for our listeners, what would that be? There's a few things, I suppose, if I can kind of uh, slightly fudge your, your question, which Go is... Ahead. Uh, Fudge away. Why? Why? You know? Why do I think we've been successful? I think we've been successful because we had real clarity about what success looked like, and uh, both in terms of describing where we wanted to get to, not just in terms of planned statements, but in terms of numbers, and that really uh, ends up as like a magnet. It drives you towards it. Um, but in order to get there, you need to surround yourself with pretty amazing people. And we, uh, and this is like, you know, you kind of get get this right after 18 years of being a chief exec. We uh, focus very uh, hard now on hiring well, hiring good people, hiring people with the right values and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, embody what we stand for, uh, but also um, how we want uh, to work as well. We want people who are uh, honest, who are humble, who are curious, um, who are ambitious. Um, so from a staff point of view, uh, I think that's been pretty critical. So the, the clarity of the direction, um, good people around you, and then uh, the third area I would say is about engagement. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and we focus, I, I work with a particular leadership uh, coach called Steve Radcliffe on this a few years ago. And I think that was, it was a game changer in terms of certainly my leadership style, but also um, how we have dramatically improved things as an organization, which is you've got to get out and about, you've got to listen to people uh, and then act on what you're listening to. And uh, if you do those things, then uh, and you've got the clarity around the future and uh, you're hiring good people and you're listening to them and you're engaging with them and you're engaging with your volunteers and your young people, then I think those are the ingredients of certainly our success. Excellent. Well, I was asking for a very short takeaway. I get a very lengthy takeaway. That's a very good thing. <laughs> Excellent. Look, that's, um, that's very useful. I'm going to take some of those tips myself. And uh, before, you, um, before you head off, I just want to encourage everybody who's listening to the show today to subscribe to the episode, to the uh, Do One Better podcast. Again, it, it helps our rankings, and that not only does it make us feel good, but actually it means that we're much more visible as people are browsing through the various podcasts on iTunes and Spotify and all of this. So just click the subscribe button. It's somewhere there on your iPhone or your Android, and it, it helps us. And Matt, uh, thanks very much. I really uh, I love speaking with you. I'm looking forward to our next coffee. And I wish you continued success for something that's uh, really wonderful uh, and impacting hundreds of thousands of lives here in the UK. So that's, um, yeah, just uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insight with our with our listeners today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. And thanks for your support, Alberto, along the way. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.